All right, we are here back again in the Detroit is Different studios. This is Kari Frazier, and it is January 23rd, 2018. I have a guest upon request. You can request different people to come and be a part of Detroit is Different. And this is somebody that our paths crossed time and time and time and time and time again, uh, starting with the two people that uh, brought me to earth. I uh, knew both my parents, Greg Frazier and Jan Frazier, who passed. He actually had a conversation, one of the last conversations anyone had with my mom before she passed, uh, when she was in the bank, as uh, my mom just passed uh, in the summer of 2017. And he is a person knee deep in a lot of stories, a lot of history and many relationships as I'm finding out more just sitting here before we get rolling where I'm like, let's let's not uh, let's not hold back anymore. Dan Aldrich, how are you? Excellent. All right, Mr. Aldrich. So your history takes you on many paths, music, uh, the church, uh, black business, so many different things. Let's start at the root of it all. Detroit. No, you have to start somewhere else. Well, that's what I was about to start from <laughs> for off rip. What you, led you to the city of Detroit? When you said root, I'm born and raised in Harlem, New York. Harlem, New York. What led you to come to Detroit? Well, I was a student at Tennessee State University, and I was active and involved in the um, student uprising. And as a consequence of that, uh... I was, I would say, falsely accused of something and was put out of school. And at the time, would you believe I was president of the student body? <laughs> so one of my classmates says, man, hey, why don't you go and live with my um, parents? Because I didn't want to go back home to New York. Uh, he said, because I'm here and, you know, I'm, uh, I'm the only child and you can sleep, you can sleep in, my, you know, in my spot and get a job in Detroit. So I said, okay. So then the school uh, was anxious to get me off of campus. <laughs> so he said, look, if you leave here, we'll find one of our uh, former students to even get you a job <laughs> as long as you leave here. So uh, that person happened to be um, Henry Heading who at that time was a lawyer and later became a judge heading. Um, my buddy who wanted me to come and stay with his, at his uh, place, his name was Felix Matlock, and his father, Felix Matlock Sr., was assistant to Congressman Diggs. So I came up here with a place to stay, went out to Chrysler, um, Mound Road Engine, and got a job working as, a, as an inspector for about seven or nine months until it was time to go back to school. What year was this? That had to be uh, 1964, 65. Okay, 64. All right, 65. This is before the rebellion of yes. 67. Now, let me ask you this question as something that I didn't know as a HBCU. I had no idea that it was a student uprising that's happening in on campuses of HBCU. There were figured, many of them. There were many. There I figure historically black colleges and, and universities were something that uh, were supportive of a lot of the change that was happening in the 60s. What led to an uprising on the campus of a historically black college? Well, first of all, you have to understand that many historically black colleges are state-owned. 
Mm-hmm. And that means that the leadership of those schools get the money from, from the uh, state legislature. So they were the most conservative uh, because, uh, you know, their plate was, was at stake. And we started the, uh, for example, I was probably the first person, well, certainly one of the first, to organize anti-Vietnam War demonstrations in Black Campus in 1963. Hmm. Uh, shut down the campus. Hmm. Nothing like that had ever happened before. Hmm. Um, people from SNCC and from other groups of our age uh, were organizing, and they were organized, there were local groups organizing in Nashville, uh, which is where I was. And even before I got there, students had been organizing massive demonstrations uh, downtown. See, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee had 14 colleges. Mm-hmm. There been lots of young people. In black school, we had Tennessee State, we had Fisk, we had American Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, and we had white schools like Vanderbilt and University of Tennessee branch, but none of those schools accepted black students. So uh, we had Fisk University, Fisk was a progressive school, had lots of more progressive middle class students. Um, uh, Marion Barry was a student there, um, Diane Nash, uh, lots of students came out of Fisk. So then we started developing, one of the things I was a part of, I was a part of helping to develop Tennessee State students and Fisk coming together rather than work separately, uh, say working class students and middle class students. We came tried to come together as one and organize together. Okay, so, now 63, this mm-hmm. is really the start of a anti-Vietnam movement. Yes beginning from the tonality and uh, just due to, and I know it's from a documentary form, but I was just watching that whole Ken Burns series Mm -hmm. on Vietnam and just like documenting and looking at the whole tonality of it. But 63 is really early on, way before Kent State. Yes. So I I had no idea that the, 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 this type of thought process was going on at HBCUs, and because of that, they wanted you off the campus. Well, let me say what happened that we had never, for the most part, socialized with students at the, at the historically white, white colleges. Hmm. They had a program at Vanderbilt University, and Tom Hayden came down from SDS, University of Michigan, hmm. and made a presentation about Vietnam. We'd never even heard of Vietnam before that time. So I started talking to Tom, and I said, man, we ought to organize something like that at Tennessee State. We call it ANI, Tennessee Agricultural and Industrial University, State University. We call it ANI, ANI. So he came, and he and I talked, and I began to talk to some other classmates. Uh, See, now all of us were subject to the draft, so we were highly motivated. Uh, I thought uh, I thought in college you were not subject to a draft. Well, no, that's not so. Hmm. You could get a deferment, but you had to apply for this deferment every year. And often this depends on what state you lived in. Different states had different policies. Mm-hmm. So you could get a college deferment, but it wasn't automatic. So anyway, we were all afraid of scoring the draft anyway. Hmm. So you, you so applied for a deferment, a, was a, but deferment wasn't automatic, and the noose was still over your head as far as yeah. 
you were concerned. Because yeah, that's that's a self-preservation type thing. Right. That, so we we came together. I remember a guy from, from Jerome and a couple of guys from Chicago, from Chicago and myself, and we some folks from Memphis, Tennessee, and we began to meet and talk about organizing uh, anti-war movement. In fact, we shut down the school. One of the things that that I didn't find out until later that the faculty was most angry with me, not the faculty, but the administration with me about, is that I shut down the ROTC building and the ROTC program. Hmm. And someone, uh, they said, set the ROTC building on fire. Now, it was not me or the fellows I was associated with. If so, they never shared the information with me. Yeah, because I don't even know if a statute right. of limitations would be yeah. up on right. something like right. that. We, but, got, uh, we, we got, you know, blamed for it. Um, but the kind of blame where, you know, we they put us all out of school. Impl- for, implied. For, for, implications, di- for, impl- yeah. for different things, you know. Yeah. But I've been organizing on the campus, and I was probably destined to be put out of school for something. Now, uh, this seems like the movie School Days or something. But uh, as you were organizing, what what was happening in uh, in from from Harlem on? Like, why, why did you end up at Tennessee State? Uh, instead of choosing a school in New York, uh, in, in what led you to Tennessee State to begin with? Well, let me say, first of all, people now take going to college for granted. Mm-hmm. At that time, now I finished high school, actually I f- supposed to finish in 1959. Hmm. I actually finished in 1960 because I failed French and had to go back and take French again. Ain't that so? So then... Uh, so that puts me out of school, uh, say, the summer of, of, well, actually, I probably graduated the, the, the fall of February of 1960. So uh, I did not have a very good uh, academic record in high school. If, I, I, I can see if you had to go back, I, one yeah, would assume yeah. you were not going on all cylinders. Right. So I because the guys with me, we ran track. Mm-hmm. And we played basketball and football. That was our total concentration. How we how we managed to do anything academic is a miracle, because uh, we focused on running track. Mm. Um, I'd been reading Jet magazine. I saw where Tennessee State had this good team, so I said, "Well, that's where I want to go to school." Mm. Now, you we couldn't. I didn't have the grades to get me in any of the other schools. I applied for a lot of schools. Uh, my parents didn't have the money at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was fortunate, and my aunt was, was Dorothy Height, who was president of the National Council of Negro Women. Okay. That's my mother's sister and my aunt, who lives right near me. Hmm. So. And uh, wait, wait, let's put, let's put Dorothy Height into the right perspective for a person listening. Dorothy mm-hmm. Height, when we think about opening up doors for black people and women, it, the 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 tree of opportunity for black women, I would say, moving from the '60s and especially the '70s and the '80s, all go back to Dorothy Height to Those, the point where recognized by presidents, recognized by the United Nations, Dorothy Height is a is a figure that is cannot receive enough praise. Uh, any of uh like a, a a rapper has you know i'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper <laughs> dorothy height is your favorite black woman's <laughs> black woman that's 
That's what Dorothy yeah. Height represents for the person that is unaware of who Dorothy Height is yeah. and what she represents. It goes from Mary McLeod Bethune to Dorothy Height. Mm-hmm. They were the preeminent figure. My Aunt Dorothy is considered essentially the godmother of the civil rights movement. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's my Aunt Dorothy. Yes. I lived on 149th Street and she lived on 152nd Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had my aunts all lived all around me. Okay, now I do have a question about this. You mentioned it. Just, just in the, I love sports, mm-hmm. and my favorite sport is basketball. Okay, and you mentioned basketball back then. Basketball was amazing, just in the sense of like, I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar does not get the credit he deserves, but it was still competitive with the athlete that had an unguardable shot. High school basketball in New York. What, what was that like? In that late fifties, early sixties, where where it was producing guys like Kareem, and then it, it, at some point in time, basketball in New York was more popular than going to see the Knicks. Right. Now, I finished high school with Connie Brown, Connie Hawkins. I'm sorry, and Roger Brown. Mm. So that's those are got they were in my senior class. Oh, the Hawk was the Hawk, right? So that was my that's my senior class. Now, my mother wanted me to play basketball. Mm-hmm. But at that time, there were very few black professional basketball players. Mm-hmm. There were only three that I know of. Will? No, no, Will comes later. Will's later. Sweetwater Clifton. Okay. Nat Sweetwater played with the Knicks. Um, Ray, uh, Ray Scott. We called him Chink, Ray Chink Scott. Um, and uh, Earl Lloyd. Hmm. That was it. Boston Celtics had one player, but he didn't really stay long. So those were basically the three. So when I came along, I was not attracted to basketball. You saw more opportunities with track. Well, track was big in our because we had something called the New York Pioneer Club, Joe Yancey, and we he trained uh, all the track guys. For example, on the team I was on, uh, the actor he later became an outstanding actor, Roscoe Lee Brown was on that team. And Roscoe's one of the baddest middle distance you can imagine. Um, so we we wanted to be track people. Mm-hmm. Basketball did not have the hold on the community that it does now. And mm-hmm. the well, there were very few. We had three three black basketball players. Each team, for the most part, had a quota system. Uh, most colleges were not were not drafting ball players, basketball players. So each college, if it had a, a black player, it had one. Hmm. I mean, my buddy who I was in school with, um, he finished. He he played for Iowa. Uh, very few people. His name was Vinny. Very few people uh, played basketball. Hmm. Now we played a lot in the communities, but a lot of that was shut off because we did not have access to um, the basketball at the white schools. Um, and uh, you had access at the black schools. We had tremendous ball players like uh, Jumping jo- uh, Jackie Jackson. Uh, we, had, we had some tremendous ball players, but the opportunities were not there. But in the communities, uh, track was the big thing. Okay, so now let's go back to the Detroit in this. You're in Detroit. You're an inspector at Chrysler for a couple of months. What Seven was- months. What was Detroit like when you first got here? Was uh, what was the culture? What was what was the tone? What what stood out? Well, what stood out is there's there lots of um, 
business activity. For example, I used to go down on um, uh, Washington Boulevard. They had they had like specialty shops. Had one I loved. Uh, bought from my girlfriend. Uh, that was they they just sold blouses and leather bags. Mm-hmm. So all they sold and scarves. Mm-hmm. And their stuff was wonderful. Uh, so there were lots of shopping opportunities, uh, high-grade shopping opportunities in Detroit. Uh, there was also lots of activity. Um, 12th Street was booming. Uh, lots of prostitutes, a lot of uh, the afterlife, as you call it, the evening life. So I uh, was working the plant. Mm-hmm. And so first time, you know, I'd been around working with men, you know what I mean? And they got their paychecks, and they went down to 12th Street and the like, visit girls, you know, or women. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a whole brand new experience for me altogether. Um, Detroit also had lots of, um, lots of music, lots and lots and lots of music. Um, I remember my buddy Ron Jackson, who some of you may know in Detroit, he plays trumpet, but he also teaches dance now. He was walking down the street, he said, and they heard this guy playing, playing trumpets. Who, who was that? And with Wynton Marsalis, who came up as a young kid, uh, staying with his aunt, practicing the trumpet. Uh, so Detroit just had music. There was just music everywhere in Detroit. Uh, a lot of my friends from Detroit were musically oriented because Detroit had such outstanding teachers of music. In, in, in high schools. Hmm. Uh, Detroit had something that we didn't have in New York, that Detroit had access to the music because, first of all, people in Detroit made the highest income of any black community. So you could afford to hire a teacher. A teacher. Number two, Detroit people lived in houses. They didn't live in a little bitty apartment buildings the way I lived in apartment buildings for the most part. I lived in a house, but most black folk in New York lived in apartment buildings that were too small for a piano. Well, Detroit, you had big houses that they could handle a piano. Beyond that, uh, you had um, Grinnells, and you could put a piano on layaway. And so a lot of working-class families in Detroit had pianos in their homes because they had the ability to purchase them on the layaway plan and have and have pianos. Hmm. And that, the access to pianos, that uh, the layaway program at Grinnells, high-quality public school teachers made, to me, has impacted the quality of music in Detroit more than anybody ever talks about. Okay, what's Grinnell's? Grinnell's was a large store on Woodward that sold pianos. Mm-hmm. And you Woodward and what? I think it was roughly Woodward and, like Woodward and Ferry. Hmm. Okay. That was one... There was another one downtown, so we had Grinnell's. So Grinnell sold pianos. So you could go into you could go into Grinnell's. You could uh, um, put your piano in layaway, and since most of the guys worked in plant, you could put uh, every time you got paid, you could put some money down on the piano. Mm. So that means that different from New York. Let me give you one example. Uh, Felonious Monk. Felonious Monk had a piano. The piano uh, he had in his apartment. The 
piano was so big that it was in the bedroom, the living room, and the kitchen all at once <laughs> because of the, of the piano. In Detroit, people had the kind of homes where they could have a piano in the living room. So many people in Detroit had pianos. Many people in Detroit had taken music lessons as a consequence of the public school system. Uh, so Detroit had an access that other areas of the city of the country did not have at all. All right, so from there, mm -hmm. those seven months, what did you end up doing in Detroit after that? Well, after that, I left Detroit because I still hadn't graduated. So I went back to Tennessee State and graduated. Okay. And when I graduated, uh, so I graduated in June, well, maybe not June, maybe May, May of 1966. Hmm. At that time, the companies had started hiring black people as a consequence of the ruckus that was coming from the South. So Chrysler came down looking for uh, people, and I got hired by Chrysler to come to Detroit and work as a personnel management trainee, one of the few positions like that. So I came what, there. What, what did you do, and what is that position? Like, what, what, what was that? Well, first of all, our headquarters was 141, uh, I forget the street right now, in Highland Park. Um, that's where I first met Elliot Hall, who was just starting as an attorney with Chrysler. I met Lonnie, Pete, Lonnie Bates, I'm sorry, Lonnie Bates, who was in the training program with me. Mm -hmm. It was called the Personnel Management Training Program. And that program had people who weren't going, going into personnel, uh, what they call HR today. Mm -hmm. And so we studied, uh, so what we would do, we would you'd work on your master at Wayne, which they paid for. Then we went to, uh, uh, different sites where you studied uh, wage administration, salary administration, labor relations, all the different areas. Mm -hmm. So I got to know Detroit because I began to work in different different plants. <coughs> Excuse me. I worked in Mound Road Engine. I was at Huber Avenue Foundry. I was at uh, what they call Dodge Main uh, and Mac Avenue Stamping. Hmm. Okay, so how long did you stay in this position? And then over that time, what was happening in the city of Detroit? Did your, did your <coughs> idea of Detroit change and, and what's happening and, and like what stood out then? Well, by the time I came back to Detroit, because I left for over nine months to finish my degree, they had an ongoing movement in Detroit. So the stupid people in the North, young people, started organizing the way young people had been in the South. Um, and I came here and I got a, initially I went to work for Chrysler. And I was asked to leave Chrysler because, um, again, I started a demonstration at the uh, Mack Avenue stamping plant because at that time Chrysler, Chrysler was making a, um, a special car that they made in their plant in South Africa. And I came across, uh, I'm walking in the plant one day. I'm working there, once again, part of my job in personnel management. And I see a great big sign advertising this station wagon being made and sold in South Africa. I said, oh no, I'm not gonna deal with that. So I took the signs down. Mm -hmm. These are the company signs. Mm -hmm. They come, what are you doing taking the sign? I said, man, that's advertising uh, 
called in South Africa. I said, I'm not support, going to be supporting apartheid. Well, you know, I wasn't going to be there but so long after that. So, All right, so the, the, the tonality of being aware of what was happening with apartheid at the time right. was very progressive of you. Yes. So how, how did you even get that information? And uh, furthermore, how did you share that information with everybody else and, and, and what was their response to it? Well, first of all, I had the information because when I was at Tennessee State, or A&I as we called it, uh, we all read. We read everything. All my classmates read. They read uh, political stuff. They read stuff going on around the world. We were knowledgeable about what was going on in, um, in South Africa, in Palestine. Um, we were we educated each other. Um, mm -hmm. We had student groups. In fact, we had one group that was where our advisor was the great author John O. Killens. Um, you know, I was in school at the time with Nikki Giovanni because she was at Fisk. So we, we were part of the same little youth group he put together. And uh, so we were educating each other about what was going on. So I, I knew I was conscious of the world. Plus, I, I was, for the time, I was extremely well read. So I came here, had, had the... Uh, Understanding of what apartheid was. Right, total. And you knew the way that Chrysler was supporting this and exploiting it. Right. And with that, you did something that I think even to this day, uh, like having a standard and taking an action that many people wouldn't because not only were you uh, probably, as they say, getting paid in the shade, you were uh, a, a, a chosen one of the black people. Yeah, I was well paid for, uh, now when I say well paid, I made $7,500 a year. But that was, for a young man, that was, that was, that was, that was good. In the time being, I don't know the equivalency. Uh, I will almost have to pull out my, my finance calculator. I have no idea. Let's say, let's say back then a brand new car probably would cost you how much? Might have been four thousand three something. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't remember that. So, but, but the the to risk that, and you were chosen in this program where to be put into a, a, a management position, right? In a big. Well, then it was a big four auto. Right. That's unprecedented as a black man. Well, my job was unprecedented, mm -hmm. the job I had. But see, on the other hand, my father was a union organizer. My father worked for the Transport Workers Union of the United States, mm -hmm. uh, uh, organizing uh, workers in uh, New York um, subway system. And then there was my Aunt Dorothy, my Aunt Dorothy Height. My aunt, uh, Evelyn, was married to Floyd McKissick who at that time was the head of Corps. Mm -hmm. So I came with lots of knowledge and experience, you know. Plus I grew up in Harlem, and Harlem and another place called East Elmhurst, New York, were just places where black people talked, shared stuff, read a lot. Uh, you went to the barbershop. I, I, I went to the same barbershop as Malcolm X, mm -hmm. you know. He and my father would be there arguing. So all this stuff was just around me. Okay, so... As this is around you, and this leads to you being ousted again, mm -hmm. I can only imagine the way that Elliot Hall and uh, Alonzo Bates looked at you like, why are you going to do all of this? Oh, well, well, everybody did. I mean, I, because I, I was going around the plant telling guys about uh, apartheid. About apartheid and showing them the, uh, the signs. The, the, well, the, the station wagons that were up there. And they were saying, hey, <laughs> and But for me, it was just impossible. So, so with that, 
what was the uh, you, you organized something at, at the Mac plant? Mac plant. What did you do? Well, what I did I brought consciousness to um, to the situation. I was told you're not going to be here long. Uh, they're going to find some way, you know, to get rid of you. Um, so I decided. I said they don't have to do that. I resign. Hmm. You know. And go to the street and organize, which is what I did. I went and helped and joined a local chapter of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee called the Friends of SNCC. Hmm. Um, and so I started, uh, and then I started working. Uh, I got a job at the Board of Education teaching. And um, then I started organizing uh, students uh, at, at King High School. And at Central High School. Was it King then, or was it still Northeast? No, it, no, no. I mean, still Northern. I mean, still Eastern. Mm-hmm. It went from Eastern to King. Okay. Uh, Northeastern was a different school over on Grandy. Okay. Uh, it had just become King for a year. So the kids I was dealing with were that first class. And they had continence. And f- the other thing was their student advisor at the school was someone named Fanny Humphrey, who later became Mama, started Aisha Shoelace School. I know. Mommy Imani Humphrey. Mommy Imani Humphrey, but mm-hmm. when I knew her, she was Fanny. Yep. And uh, I also worked in the community with her husband, Richard. Hmm. You know, so I worked with both of them, you know, in different places, not knowing myself they were married. You know what I mean? Hmm. Because uh, I'm once again I'm new to Detroit, right? So I don't know all the connections and that kind of thing. Okay, so uh, this is like another podcast where we mention Mommy Monty Humphrey, who started the Aisha Shule, mm-hmm. and is in a lot of ways a, a, a stronghold of African centered education, mm-hmm. uh, not just in Detroit but nationally. <coughs> um, <coughs> recently passed as I'm I attended the Aisha Shule, but you also have. Other schools in Sorma Institute, uh, uh, led by Maliki Kini and many others, and also Nataki Taliba with uh, Carmen M. Right. So there were a, a swelling of a lot of consciousness and African centered thought, uh, black nationalism oh, yeah. in and around heavy. the city of Detroit, and consciousness of teaching children the legacies of black people that go over and beyond the idea and the inception of. Uh, the black experience begins with enslavement and then transitions <coughs> to civil rights. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, first of all, Malini Kinney was a kid. Malini mm-hmm. Kinney was a kid who worked at Ed, Ed Vaughn's bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, Ed Vaughn is central to a lot of this kind of stuff through the bookstore. <coughs> but uh, Ed Vaughn also uh, one of the many organizers that worked alongside Reverend Clegg and yes. uh, the Shrine of the Black Madonna, right. which is the uh, foundation of many African-centered movements, but definitely African-centered, the connection between African-centered organizing and Christianity. Uh, we, we look at the Shrine of the Black Madonna as the anchor well, of... I was an early member of the Shrine of the Black Madonna. Hmm. Um I lived at a time on Pingree Street, and I worked at, uh, it's interesting, I got a job um, working for the city of Detroit. 
So this is after your your time working with the after board I leave Christ, yeah, board of education. I resigned. You know, I knew my days they were numbered. So what happened? I went to take a test. Gonna take a test um, um, for Detroit. At that time, why did you want to leave the board? I don't know. I di- I didn't enjoy teaching that much. You know, I liked organizing more. I I didn't like having a class. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, at that time, you had to fight like mad to teach anything black. That wasn't easy. That was a rumble. Another rumble. Every time every time you go to school, it's a rumble. Mm-hmm. Students say, oh, Mr. Aldridge told me this. What? <laughs> so I was trying to find somewhere not to rumble every day just to go to work, earn some money, and then take care of my business. Okay. Uh, so what happens, but I was still involved at that time with people in the street who were organizing. And I ran into Ken Cockrell. Ken Cockrell Sr. Ken Cockrell Sr. Uh, an attorney and yes. uh, one of the biggest <coughs> supporters <coughs> of a lot of the injustice that was going yes. on with police brutality throughout the city of Detroit. In the 60s, 70s, and even on to the 80s. Right. So now Kenny and and Dorothy Dewberry, Aldridge, who later became my wife, had grown up together sort of uh, in um, uh, 8 Mile area of Detroit, Royal Oak Township, Ferndale area. So I knew Kenny. So I see him down at the... Um, down at the... Uh, uh, Wayne stayed quiet because I was there working on my master's and he was going to law school. And we would talk um, a lot. So he said he was going to get a job at City Detroit. Because everybody was trying to find somewhere to work, you know. And stay out that plant. So I said, oh man, me too. So what happened, Kenny went and Kenny uh, passed the test. Hmm. Just very difficult. Supposedly, uh, I passed the test also. Uh, I made the, t- the second highest score ever made in Detroit. Um, but what happened, Kenny's interview was before mine. And Kenny did not get hired. So I said, well, I said why, why didn't Kenny get hired? I mean, Kenny, you know, we consider him one of the baddest cats around. So he said, well, afterwards, man, they give you an interview. And that's where they fail you, because they fail him at the interview. So after he told me that, mm-hmm. I was prepared. So when I went for the interview, I almost like pretend to be somebody else, you know what I mean, to pass the interview. So I knew what not to say, not to say any magic words about the movement of black, nothing. You know, I'm, my thing was, I just came from the South, and I'm just so glad to have a job. Boom, boom, boom. So I got hired. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and uh, we laughed because that was the formula. What what year was this? That was nineteen sixty. It would have had to have been. It might have been late sixty six. Okay, so yeah. was was Mayor Kavanaugh in office? Yeah, Mayor Kavanaugh was in office. So with <clears throat> under the whole concept of Mayor Kavanaugh being office, in office, mm-hmm. I've been doing a little bit more studying. Mayor Kavanaugh, 
was definitely reaching out for as much support from the black community as possible. Definitely. So, but he wasn't interested in reaching any militants. Well, I mean, he definitely. <laughs> but what's important about that, because one of the people who worked for him was one Conrad Mallard Sr., was on the senior staff, mm -hmm. and the fellow named Ollie McKinney. Mm -hmm. Ollie McKinney turned out to be, um, while he kept it a secret at the time, a major person in the shrine in Central United Church of Christ. See, that it wasn't Shrine of Black Madonna. It was Central United Church of Christ. Okay. And so Ollie and I worked together there for the city. So he said, man, he said, man, you know in the city, you don't know a lot of people. He said, why don't you go to church with me? I said, sure, sure. I'll pick you up, man, take you to my church. So he picked me up and took me. I lived in, I lived on Pingree. So you live basically not that far. Not that far. I can walk there. Mm -hmm. So he said, man, you live right near the church. Because he lived in southwest Detroit. So he came, picked me up every Sunday he would, and I started going to the church at the Shrine of Black uh, Century Nine Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. And at some point, I joined. <coughs> so I joined the Shrine before it became the Shrine. Mm -hmm. <coughs> okay, so with this, in under that whole concept, and Mayor Kavanaugh, mm -hmm. as as I look back at a lot of things transitioning. Um, you were there in 66. So that means that you were working with the city when the rebellion struck. Yes. So what what was happening then? Uh, what role did you play in the city? And how did the city approach it at the time? Well, at the time, uh, I basically was doing my job and was trying to uh, organize in the street. You know, we organized at the high schools. We organized at King High School and at... Uh, Central High School. What were you organizing around? Um, Sometimes conditions at the school and working also with Fannie Humphrey to get more black uh, history and culture in the school. Hmm. Because I was organizing on the outside and the kids said, hey, we got a lady on the inside, our English teacher. She uh, said some of the stuff you're saying. Hmm. So basically... A lot of uh, my early members of the group I have organized called the All African People's Union. A lot of those my students, Mark Bethune was, he was at, he was at Central. Kenny Snodgrass was at Central. Hmm. Uh, who else? Kids. Um, Cecily, what they call it now, Ebony, uh, who's real active. Ebony was at the King. Ron Lockett was at King. Uh, Ronald Hunt was at King. These were all students. Those were my King students, Victor Stewart, Vera uh, uh, Coleman, Margie Stewart. Uh, so we were organizing young people to educate about uh, uh, Africa, history of liberation. In fact, I taught, at the time I called myself uh, an encrumacist. An <laughs> so I taught a lot out of the books of Kwame Nkrumah. Hmm. Now, and I was able to contact him, and I had, you know, contact with Nkrumah uh, because he was had had known Grace Boggs, mm -hmm. and through Grace Boggs, I contacted Kwame Nkrumah, and we, uh, uh, you know, corresponded, hmm. corresponded with, with Kwame Nkrumah and with later Howard Thurman, mm. um, you know, young guy trying to find out more about the movement. Um, so we were organizing these kids in the street. Uh, 
Uh, we were doing things like reading together, studying together. Um, many of them can tell you honestly that I taught them how to read. Hmm. Um, and so some of it was just sharing the knowledge. Yes. And some of it was also uh, organizing around the efforts, I'm guessing, of what the students found most most interesting. Yeah, on the problems they had in school, too. Yes. Okay. Now, uh, from this, like I say, 67 hits, what changes in the office of the mayor, what type of discussions are happening with your job in the city, What what's going down? Well, I'm no longer with the mayor's office, then I... I, uh, uh, the Commission on Children and Youth, um, I sort of re resigned. Well, what happened, actually, that was in 68. When I was, I was, I'm going, I'm going to skip now just a little after, after the rebellion. I'm, um, organizing. Everybody knows me, leading demonstrations, doing different things around the city. And one of the white guys who I work with said, man, I know you must be feeling pretty good today. So I said, why must I be feeling good? He said, oh, Uncle Tom got killed. So I said, which Uncle Tom is that? He said, Dr. King. Oh. And with that, you know, I decked him. And... Uh, that time had almost no violence in the, in the camp. I took a, I did something I shouldn't have done. Obviously, uh, I took a telephone and educated him on the different aspects of the telephone head device. Okay. So Conrad, uh, I think uh, <laughs> at that time and generally yeah. no time, yeah. assault in the workplace right. is uh, <laughs> you know, it's probably a fireable offense as you. Uh, yeah. As you learned a lot about personnel in uh, HR. Yeah. So what happened... <laughs> Generally immediate dismissal. Conrad Mallet, senior, <laughs> came to my defense because he was, he was the executive assistant. Mm. And once we told the whole story as to what happened, mm. he said, well, um, he said he could live with me, uh, let me resign, live with me not working there anymore, but he wanted no penalties against me whatsoever. Okay. He said because uh, because, why, of the because of the because the, the, con the what situation happened? what happened. The he said he can understand how that transpired. <laughs> so I left. Um, so I left Chrysler working for Chrysler. Well, we weren't left working for the city, and then went back substitute teaching, uh, and then also working for the Michigan Chronicle. Hmm. Uh, with, I had two or three different columns, and they were paying something like $10 a column, I think. So what type of columns were you writing for the Chronicle at the time? All progressive. I had, had one column called Serious Business. Okay. Had another column called Like It Is. Uh, they were, they were uh, basically uh, progressive columns advocating uh, a progressive school system, uh, advocating uh, uh, whatever I thought was in the interest of black people. Okay. All right. So at this place in space, as it seems like every every uh, every couple of months, like every couple of seasons, you progress mm -hmm. past things happening. What's progressing other than that at that time? How, how long were you there in that in that position? Well, let me go back to to, to rebellion. Okay. What happened? Uh, 
we were we were organizing the Black Power Movement. You know, Stokely would come to town, Rap would come to town, different people. Okay, he's speaking. Let me give context for everybody listening. Stokely Carmichael, uh, who H. Rap Brown, yeah, Kwame Ture. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, as as many people will know, Kwame Ture. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the organizers uh, at one point in time with SNCC that progressed past that and on to uh, many of the movements that we think about for that that has been labeled as black nationalism, but more so, I'm going to say black empowerment for ownership of black businesses in black communities, mm-hmm. ownership of black homes. Uh, Fair and equal treatment when it came to owning homes and uh, starting businesses, uh, feeding <coughs> and farming for black people, which uh, eventually led to a lot of the movements going beyond uh, what became one of my later mentors and uh, in what Chokwe Lumumba followed mm-hmm. in uh, both the the, Bre- the Henry brothers, Mario mm-hmm. uh, Bedelli and Milton Henry. Uh, these are all of the. Uh, foundations of many of these thoughts uh, you can find from H. Rap Brown, uh, Kwame Ture. A lot of that is happening and they're coming back and forth to Detroit a lot as many of the movements started in Detroit because there was more money here uh, for black people just due to the auto industry where Detroit funded a lot of the organizations yes uh, for the civil rights movements uh, for the black power movements uh, for a lot of the the black unions across the across many fields See, those are all people who I work with uh-huh Milton and I uh, and I call him Richard later Gaidi and later Imari called, yep. called Milton Gaidi we worked together, a lot of us, at what became Shrine to Black Madonna. Yes. Because while they came to participate in the activity, they were not members. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of progressive people, like Grace Boggs, James Boggs, never became members of the church, but were active at the church. Mm-hmm. Ed Vaughn was a member of the church. But other people like Milton Henry, Richard Henry, Grace Boggs, Jimmy Boggs, they were not members, but they were active participants in church activities. So I knew and worked with all these people. Uh, also, we had we had black sort of black power meetings at at the shrine. At that time, uh, Don Lee, who later became Haki Mahabudi, uh, Nikki Giovanni, uh, almost everyone you can think of, came and made presentations at the church. And I and I knew and I knew all, just about all of them. And many of uh, many of this all took place as as we know it in my neighborhood. I still call it my neighborhood down the street from Northwestern High School, um, right there on Linwood. And yes. then it was also a lot of support as you talk about some of the competitive advantages in Detroit, but a lot of support also from uh, uh, C. L. Franklin, Aretha Franklin's yes. father, uh, with uh, New Bethel Baptist Church, right. which was. Uh, when we think about one of the pastors being a person that was great in the business, great in the opportunity, and a forward thinker about how to organize, that happened as well. Yeah. Well, I knew CL. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at New Bethel the night the shooting, the police attacked the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I was there with Mark Bethune, Ebo, who later, you know, got killed. Bethune, Brown, and Boyd. He lived with me, lived with Dorothy and I. Um, 
So I was there that night. Uh, and later, I became closer to CL because he liked the way I analyzed things. So and, he and, and I would me, meet. Let me explain that incident. Uh, and what he's talking about is the shooting that took place at New Bethel mm -hmm. Baptist Church uh, between the organizers of the Republic of New Africa mm -hmm. and the Detroit Police Department. And this incident is one of the incidents that eventually definitely needs to be documented and shared and told uh, for many people to recognize the tensions and the level of police brutality that was existing uh, around the whole concept of black empowerment right. at the time. And many of these organizers, when we think about Milton Henry uh, and Mario Bedelli or Richard Henry, and so many others, uh, Gloria House or Mama Neb. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Neb Kiliko CDs. And so many others uh, that, that were there. <coughs> and C.L. Franklin <coughs> at the time found a lot of this organizing and was supportive of it. And just supportive of a lot of young black people getting a place in the space to have an opportunity. Even, to, uh, as I always say, like the competitive advantage Motown had was mm -hmm. that a lot of the engineers that would have never gotten an opportunity to touch an audio board had the opportunity to touch audio boards because they could go down the street to, to New Bethel Baptist Church and learn how to record because mm -hmm. C.O. Franklin was the first person to buy all of the equipment and to produce sermons all the time. So Barry Gordy and the Gordy family had a competitive advantage over a lot of talented, very talented musicians across the world mm -hmm. that down the street from Motown Museum was New Bethel Baptist Church and just due to racist barriers you could get the engineer. Well before that time by the way much of that engineering was done by a fellow named Joe Von Battle. Okay. He had a um, a place on, a, a, on 12th Street. He's the first person to record Reverend Franklin mm. and uh, so he did much of that. He recorded Reverend Franklin he recorded Little Sonny his name is Joe Von Bell. You see his daughter now talking a lot, calling Marsha Music. I forget her other name. Yeah. Uh, so that's her, her dad. Okay. Was, was the guy who actually was the engineer for so much of the early blues and gospel and rhythm and blues in Detroit. Mm -hmm. So being at this incident and, and the rebellion what what path did you take? It seems like everything is pointing you towards entrepreneurship, as you see that. Well, um, what happened each time you know you have one of these jobs and you have an incident, you got one of the less place you can work. I mean, yes. So, so what happened? The options were slim. Right, become slim. Uh, the new Bethel thing, for example. We had a group called the All African People's Union. Key people in my group was Mark Bethune, uh, from who's still around named Kenny Snodgrass, Victor Stewart, Margie Stewart, Vera Coleman, students who'd been to King and Central. Uh, and we just, so, so the Republic of New Africa was going to have a meeting down there. And what was interesting at that time, a lot of us groups worked together. You know, we didn't have to agree to work together, we had different views. We still work together. So we decided to go down to uh, New Bethel just to see, because all we consider all that the movement. 
see what was going on. And uh, what happened, a fellow named, um, and all the RNA people, Republican of Africa, they had on like army uniforms with epithets and uh, a lot of strange activity going on. So what happened was, with there, the fellow named Rafael Vieira, he's Puerto Rican, member of the RNA from New York. It's a national meeting. He steps inside an AK-47 in the strap and he knocks the gun to the ground. It doesn't go off. But I said to all of my people, I said, look, I'm leaving. Why? I said, I don't want to be around anywhere where someone has these rifles and doesn't know how to handle them. So I left, and by the time I got home, uh, my wife told me, she said, look, you just got a call from Kenny. Say, what's happening? She said, they got evil or something pinned down there, shooting it out. They're shooting like, I, said, I just left there. Because at the time, I lived on um, Monica, 1259 Monica. And uh, so not far. Uh, yeah. So by the time I got home, so they shoot it out up there. So oh my goodness, so I go back. I said, where's Kenny? Because I knew he had a weapon and he'd be trying to go back up and join the situation because he and Mark were through close if he thought Mark was under attack. So I went and grabbed Kenny, tapped him, almost knocked him down. I said, hey man, no, 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 no. Take that gun and put it back home. Those are the police out there. Only thing you're gonna do is get killed. Let's so go back home unless you and I go down here, just like we're citizens, and see what's happening. And we did, and by the time we got there, they were, you know, had the place around it, uh, were shooting it up, um, and were handcuffing people, taking them away, you know, and buses and the like. Um, and then later on we saw where they had shot, shot up a bunch of our friends and gotten shot. Uh, and... Uh, and we just managed to, to escape, you know, the situation. So that was, um, the atmosphere was like that. So after that, where did you go? After that, uh, worked with SNCC. Trying, we, had a, we had an office on um, uh, Dexter and, and Fullerton. Mm -hmm. And we were, trying, we were organizing. I, I never lived uh, uh, expensively. So, you know, had some money, you know, saved up, and just spent most of the day just working the movement. Uh, Sometimes teaching him that I taught a little bit at the U of D, I taught a little at Wayne State, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, just trying to hustle different speaking engagements and gigs around. Um, I'd become known nationally, so I had speaking engagements at the University of Washington, a number of different places. Uh, Cornell University, in fact, I was at Cornell when the whole shooting broke out at Cornell University. Hmm. Um, so, you know, I'd spoken at Cornell, spoke at the University of Washington, different places, and, um, you know, that was it. Now, interesting thing, when the rebellion started, I wasn't even in town. I was in Newark at the Newark, at the Newark Black Power Conference. Hmm. I was there, Ed Vaughn was there, who else? Arthur Smith was there. We were there at the Black Power Conference. Hmm. We were not there together, but we were there. Okay, and uh, what he's speaking of is uh, very important as uh, Mari Baraka and many other people mm -hmm. organized uh, these black power conferences that now 
have recently begun again as his son is the mayor of Newark. Right. And uh, this black cop power conference that was called upon, uh, which led to many different ideologies uh, being birthed and and in the start uh, of a unison. Uh, yeah, I went to one. In, I went to the one in Newark. Mm-hmm. Another one in Philadelphia. Okay. And I went to the one in Philadelphia at the behest of Al Dunmore, who was the editor of the Chronicle, who wanted to cover the story, but said he couldn't get in. I mean, couldn't really get in unless. Someone Unless like me. Someone <laughs> could uh, could vouch for you. That vouch for not a, right at the right, time at the agent or at, whatever. At the whatever. agent right, provocateur, right. right? As uh, many of black organizations, uh, for rightfully so, uh, suspect that uh, there there were many people that were government agents right. infiltrating a lot of the black organizations right. because of the histories of what happened uh, to Marcus Garvey, what happened to the Black Panther Party, what happened to even Martin Luther King and his organizations, Mm -hmm. uh, there is a long lineage of, uh, you know, the FBI uh, being basically founded in the the counterintelligence and the dismantling of black liberation movements. So at the time, there was... There was a, a strong awareness of who could be an agent provocateur if you were not someone that is and has been around a lot of the organizing right. of black black power. So I went there with Al Dunmore. Dorothy Dewberry and I went there with, with Al Dunmore mm-hmm. because she knew the folk in the South because she had been connected with SNCC much longer. I knew a lot of militants who were in the North. Mm-hmm. And... So we were able to get in there, and Al was able to get the story, introduce him, introduce him to all of the people, you know. I think it was headed, at that time, those those conferences were headed by, I think, a minister, Episcopal minister by the name of Nathan Wright. Hmm. He was key in organizing these things. So we went, uh, I think we drove in the car from here to Philadelphia. Now, along this way, you also established a church. No. Uh, that doesn't come to much later. Much later. Okay. Because, I mean, we, we're going to have to break this down generally <laughs> into like two, maybe three parts. So it's like you're, 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 you know, as we come to, to like this mark, and I'm going to have to probably definitely get you back in effect. But um, that doesn't come to the 80s. To the 80s. Okay. So, th- so this is like more so still closing out the 60s. Right. So closing out the '60s, just if if we were to put a synopsis on this, what what were some of the lessons you learned in black organization, and uh, black liberation and black power? I think one of the major things I learned, and I still hold today, is not to hold too tight to ideological differences. We had issues there. There was I was with SNCC in Detroit. Uh, there was uh, the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. There was um, the Pan-African Congress. There was more people the Shrine of Black Madonna. There was, um, there's someone key, I'm leaving. Oh, I said Pan-African Congress, the Shrine. Um, that, that many of us are RNA, 
had differences, but the differences weren't so fundamental that we couldn't work together. We considered all of it the movement. So a lot of times we supported each other's activities. For example, even though I was not a member of the League of Re Revolutionary Black Workers and did not share their ideology, um, some of my some of my the people I respected the most and got along with the best were um, like Mike Hamlin and John Williams uh, because we had personal relationships that transcended our ide ideological differences. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a lot of us were friends. While I did not support at all the ideology of the League of, Revolution, uh, League of uh, Republic of New Africa, I was good friends with Milton Henry. We used to argue all the time like mad. Milton Henry and I were best of friends. We argued like mad all the time. Richard never did like me because I didn't agree with him. Uh, and I thought that he was taking the RNA down a dangerous path that they could not handle, um, which I think turned out to be the case. Uh, but we differed all the time. We argued all the time. Uh, for example, Milton Henry, man, would get so mad with me, argue with me, curse me out, but dance on me. And then he finished said, well, look, what you in the morning? I said, what do you mean? Let's go to breakfast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we go to breakfast, you know what I mean? You know, it's funny you talk about Milton Henry as I, ha I I speak about I speak about him in a presentation I have my If Detroit Were Heaven presentation mm -hmm. because his the, the house where we're in right now, my grandma's house. Mm -hmm. uh, later on, he became a Presbyterian minister, yes. and uh, he worked very close to my grandma because she she was his minister of music. And did you know that he and I went to seminary together? Were in the, oh no, I yeah. had no idea. Yeah, we were similar together. But I do know this: I, I, his 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 look at a lot of things in life as as time went on, and like his view viewpoint towards faith, with many of his experiences, as close as he mm -hmm. was to Malcolm X and uh, organizing to bring Paul Robeson and interacting and uh, really the, the the whole taping of the, the I Have a Dream speech for Motown Records and a lot of that transitioned on to uh, Did you know he taped Message of the Grassroots? Yes, I know that as well I know that as well but a lot of his work transitioned on to uh, faith and, and, and humility and the Milton Henry that I knew as a child <laughs> becoming the Milton Henry with the past and the history and still applying and still having these relationships as I know he'd still, you know, travel the world. Mm-hmm. Um, his transitions and how I look at organizing definitely is progressive as the, the, the writings and the works connected to the Republic of New Africa and the way he organized his time went on. I could definitely see that it was a... Pro it was a transition in ways to bring about equality and human rights for people. Yeah, well, Milton, a couple of things about Milton. First of all, Milton and I were very close. Two, Milton may well be one that really, Milton was one of the most talented people I ever met in my life. Milton Henry was, was an absolute genius. He was skilled in many different areas. Um, not only was he a brilliant attorney, which he was, um, 
Milton, um, he was skilled uh, things like what you're doing now. Uh, he, he's a fantastic photographer. Milton, Milton is the kind of guy who just mastered anything that he touched. Whatever he could do, he was the master of it. So he was just absolutely and totally brilliant. But the other thing is, he changed over time. Uh, he and I were similar together. And he became a staunch, at the end, traditional, more narrow Christian. Uh, I did not. And he would get so angry with me, we were in class, that he would get up and attack me in school. Uh, call me uh, all kinds of names. So I'm laughing because the last time that happened, uh, it was in front of a whole white, uh, just about all white student body, and he's attacking me. He attacked me, he attacked Malcolm, and he attacked Nkrumah. He said with all three of us, uh, you know, weren't following Jesus. He was, he became, became very evangelical at the end. Mm -hmm. Very, but, but the very much so. But the funny thing about it was, the last time he really attacked me, he called me Professor Bootman, which was a German theologian, so-and-so. So in the end, he finished, and I told him, I said, Milton, I don't care what you say. I still love you, and you're going to be my friend. And even when you're doing dumb stuff, you, you cannot hurt my feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I felt about Milton. I mean, I actually loved Milton. And even when he, when he was being kind of disagreeable, Milton had the most genuine heart, the most loving spirit. So I didn't even get angry with him. And there were people who would see us later on. They said, Milton just attacked you. And, and you, you, didn't, you didn't say anything. I said, man, let me tell you something. Milton and I are brothers. Milton can say anything to me. I don't even care. I feel the same in this town, for example, like Lonnie Peake. Lonnie Peake and I work together. Whatever Lonnie Peake says to me, whatever Milton Henry says to me, I know how much each of us deeply cares for the other and how much each of us is generally committed to the movement. So even if we have the differences, it never penetrates because of, I feel somehow I know their heart and I know their spirit. Okay. And uh, with that, as as kind of like a close, that's what you said about the 60s. Because mm -hmm. I, I got to get you back, but we're, okay. we're, we're, we're in the OT now. Mm -hmm. 70s. What was it, if you had to like give the work you were doing in the 70s, if you had to surmise mm -hmm. that closely, what lesson did you learn? And, and what was happening with Black Detroit then? Well, we were recuperating from the rebellion. Most people don't really understand how much we lost the rebellion. See, I consider the rebellion a failure. I don't consider, I don't celebrate the rebellion what other people did. A lot of people lost their lives. People lost their homes. People lost their businesses. Um, it changed an awful lot about the city. I think the good thing that happened is that much of what had been done in the 60s began to show some fruit, and that fruit resulted in the election of Coleman Young as the mayor of the city. And that also positively changed many things. Mm -hmm. um, and now people are just starting to realize um, 
what an absolutely great man Coleman was. Uh, but um, Coleman's um, hiring of people, you know, 50-50, his uh, determination to uh, uh, end police brutality, uh, his fighting to bring uh, black police officers and firemen to the jobs. There are many, many things that Coleman Young did we've never talked about. So at that time, I got hired by Coleman as an assistant to the mayor. Hmm. And I was in charge of primarily all the neighborhood city halls on the east side. I was a sector leader. So that changed my focus from being Detroit to being the east side of Detroit. Okay. All right, 80s. Well, the 80s then, uh, the 80s that I began, to, I became influenced earlier but by, by C.L. Franklin, who, by the way, I, um, before he got shot, right before he got shot, I used to, he and I used to work together. Uh, I, he, I, would, I would help him to, to analyze scripture and break it down. And he would said he would, and we, we, we'd meet in classes, just one-on-one, -on -one, he and I, uh, at New Calvary Baptist Church. Because mm. he didn't want anyone, Reverend Butler, want anyone to know that he was being, you know, schooled, educated, trained by this young fellow, right? So we would meet privately there. And I would, he and I, would, we would go over scripture. And uh, so he would say, don't worry about it, because I'm going to Franklinize it. Means he gonna take it and whoop it up and do what he wants with it. Just give me, just give me how, 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 how do you see that? He loved the way I analyzed things. Uh, so, and my mentor at that time was Reverend Butler, Charles Butler, New Calvary Baptist Church, mm -hmm. who I respected for his extraordinary intellect and really knowledge of um, progressive history and ministers. Uh, he, I learned an awful lot from Reverend Butler. And as a consequence of that, I decided uh, to go into the ministry. And uh, because I also saw the enormous advantage you had that progressive ministers could make a difference, and always had. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's what the 80s were for me. Time of um, adjusting the church, becoming a minister uh, who had non-traditional views, and the difficulty of dealing with that, um, and also uh, during the 80s, I began using, seeing jazz music as a progressive force in the culture. Hmm. And so I began doing lots of uh, jazz. I probably, I probably became the preeminent promoter of, of jazz pianists in the country. Uh, I'm pretty certain that's true. At least Billy Taylor said that. He said it uh, on the Marion McFarland show. Uh, okay. He told people that he would, he said he would work for me for nothing. Hmm. So I developed enormous respect uh, um, among jazz musicians. And still today, what I'm doing today, you know, I'm the manager of the Undisputed Truth the Rhythm and Blues group, where I'm uniting rhythm and blues singers with jazz instrumentalists, uh, a large part, part of that groundwork was laid in the 80s because I never had friends like Herb Boyd and uh, I mean, Herb Boyd and I taught the first black slaves class ever taught at Wayne State University. Hmm. So it was Herb Boyd and I 
and our other friend, uh, uh, Kenny Cox, uh, the composer and pianist, and Kenny, both Kenny and her really helped to educate me about, about the music. And we developed lots of friends like uh, Marcus Belgrave, uh, uh, Don, uh, I forget Don, saxophone player. So, uh, so all, so all these. So I began to have a whole series of friends: Ernie Rogers, all these, uh, Harold McKinney, all the these jazz guys became more than music. Roy Brooks and I were very tight. Uh, became friends, and uh, I began to see uh, jazz music as also as a vehicle for liberation. Okay, nineties. The nineties, I leave Detroit. I, I go past the churches in uh, uh, D.C., in Atlanta, Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, Decatur, Georgia, because hmm. I'm I'm looking for uh, at the time I'm looking for something much more liberal, and the black churches here they were just too conservative, too conservative for me theologically. Mm-hmm. I was just uncomfortable working. Uh, churches that, that, that are so theologically conservative. So what brought you back to Detroit, and when did you come? I came back in 2002. Hmm. Uh, what happened, My I was there, um, I was in D.C., and my wife, uh, Dorothy, did, did, just did not want to leave Detroit. Because <laughs> she was mostly here, and I was there. And, you know, and those, those things don't usually work out too well. And well, so, we'll assume... And so and then my grandson, who uh, I brought with, I took with me to Maryland for a little while, and he, he came back here and lived with his mother, because his mother, and he said, he said, Granddaddy, will you please think about coming to Detroit? We really want you to come to Detroit. And um, I think more than anything else, the request of my grandson uh, for me to come back. So when you came back, how did you see the landscape? I was shocked. First of all, the first street that shocked me was Hamilton. I'd never seen so many potholes. And since the Raggedy Street in my, I, I said, I told people, I said, I must have missed the war. Did I miss the war? Detroit looked like it was a war. And I went to old areas where we used to hang out like around Dexter and Linwood. And Linwood. I was like, my mouth was open. Detroit looked terrible to me. I'd never seen such raggedy houses, torn up neighborhoods. Uh, Detroit wasn't like that when I came here. Hmm. So today, mm-hmm. what's your perspective on the city? Well, my perspective on the city is that we've got to find we, we, we've got to find ways of building black power in the city, um, where the city has made significant strides. Uh, economically, basically these strides impact the, the, the white middle class, upper middle class communities. Uh, you see the downtown, uh, you see uh, um, midtown, you see white people controlling almost everything and doing very well. And large segments of the black community are, are poor, uh, are suffering from issues like uh, water cutoffs and shortages. Uh, uh, foreclosing of their homes, uh, and the lack of employment with a livable wage. Uh, we've got to find a way, to, and, and a lot, lot of areas we don't have communities. 
you know, communities don't have stores. Uh, uh, so, so with this being something that you see, mm-hmm. what are the solutions to some of these challenges you believe? What could get some of the black power that needs to come back? Well, I, I guess for me, one solution is for many of us to come together and start talking and having some serious conversation with each other. I don't think it's easy, but I think that uh, I'm convinced of working as a team to working together. Mm-hmm. And Just for instance, a conversation about, just give me one thing. Well, let me give you an example. Um, my friend um, uh, George Ramsey, who was, who was the original, who was the manager of the originals, says, "I want you, man, then I want you to work with Joe Pep." Mm-hmm. Say, man, I don't know anything about rhythm and blues. Said, "You guys think alike." I said, "Okay." So I get together with someone who I didn't know, never worked before. I didn't have an appropriate appreciation for his art. And we started doing some work together. And now we and one of the things we want to do, we want to help bring back the music business in Detroit. Because at one point in the black community, the music business was the fourth largest employer in the city, other than big three. Mm-hmm. So that's just one. And we want to talk to musicians, work toward trying to build houses, trying to build a, um, um, grocery stores, pl- place where, where healthy food is, is served. We want to also uh, uh, employ a lot of the young people to take advantage of much, much of the technological skill that the young people came after us have, like you have this facility here. And so we're producing now, uh, for example, a record, an album that we think is going to be nominated for a Grammy. And we're using all Detroit musicians, except for one that we have in California. But everyone else is from Detroit. Our our engineer that we have is Rufus Harris, who used to be the engineer, head engineer for United Sound. So we're using all Detroit people. A person, our website designer, is from. Detroit. We're using all Detroit people. Um, do everything. Our, our photos. Our first. Our photo shoot was with uh, Monica Morgan. Our next mm-hmm. photo shoot is going to be with uh, Sherman Eaton of the Native Detroiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, 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 we buy our clothes from, uh, uh, you know, Hot Sam's. And we, uh, we do everything that we, we're trying to do to help promote uh, economic development in the black community. And we think it's, I mean, we don't think it's the solution for everything, but it's something positive, you know, that we're doing. And we want to uh, connect, like, for example, uh, I'm the chairman of the board of the Greater Woodman Community Development Corporation, in which we own a 33,000-square-foot building on uh, on East Grand Boulevard near Mount Elliott across from the packet plant. Hmm. Uh, and we want to take that and turn that into something really significant. Uh, so we want to begin to uh, do things that, that energize the community, both culturally and economically. Uh, and I don't think there's one easy way to do that, and there's, there's not only one. There's many ways to do that, uh, but our solution right now for me is working with the music and trying to do what we the best we can. We have uh, so our slogan is Detroit still makes real music, um, and so we're using it through the music, but it's in many, many different areas. And okay. So that's where we are. 
All right. So with that, um, definitely leave. If people want to get in contact with you, how should they do it? They can contact me through my email address. Okay. Which is easy. Jazz City. J A Z Z C I T Y. Thirty-seven twenty-nine at gmail.com jazz city 3729 at gmail thank you mr aldridge we're gonna have to definitely get you back as we unpack so much of the early on Mm -hmm. but great information uh and i'm glad that detroit is different could host you and get this information out there to the world great man i'm i'm down with you thank you